How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. I'm Justin Bishop. We are joined, as always, by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I like that you put the A in there, because it's always weird. It's like, Todd A. Davis. Yeah, he he, he <laughs> he's, he's introduces himself as Todd A. Davis. So. I do. Yeah. And so I, I do the same for him, you know? I appreciate uh, just it. Just so, so that he's not being confused with other Todd Davises, there, those jackasses. There, there is another Todd Davis that plays for the Denver Broncos. So I, <laughs> in you case know. anyone thought that that's who our yeah. podcast host was. <laughs> yeah. In case anyone thought I was a su- successful African American football player, um, that's not the case. I no. know. Today, talking I, about basic yeah. instinct, you, is you are the NFL actual... superstar, Todd Davis. <laughs> You're the opposite of all of those things. I'm the opposite of all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, guys, we are in week, uh, I don't know, episode three, four, episode four yeah. of our Paul Verhoeven series. Uh, this is a fun one because uh, we're getting back into that sleazy stuff he was doing in Europe, only this time uh, making it for a lot more money and making a lot more money. I'm excited to talk. I've been excited to talk about this. I had not seen this movie in quite a few years, so it was it was fun to revisit and really fun to dive into the making of this one because it's got some. There's some wild stories uh, behind this one. Besides all the you know the obvious reasons to watch this movie, it does seem like they were having a lot of fun. What well, you're talking about is Sharon Stone's talking. vagina. Is what he's talking about. Oh, okay. oh, I was talking about Michael Douglas's butt. Yeah. yeah, that was there too. He worked uh, out. He got a he got a um he got a facelift right before this movie. <laughs> I gotta say, I was uh I did watch the commentary on this one and they only breezed over it, but I got a good understanding of it's always disturbed me like when you get like really graphically sexual and like how how do you do this? Yeah. How is this not awkward? Like yeah yeah, but they they talked about like the 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 Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas stuff is like Verhoeven's like it's extremely choreographed like gone yeah. over like multiple. We're gonna times. get into this, Gary. This is we're we're just in the intro of the show. You're jumping right into this shit. <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't think his pee pee went in. Oh, but... th- thank you. They were not having actual intercourse on screen. Yeah. All right, fine. I'll let you. I'll let you take over from here. But, but uh, uh, I've given but, my contribution. To the show. So the P, the the PP didn't go in, but did they actually cook that rabbit? Ooh, good question. <laughs> Is that I don't know the answer to that question. Tom. Oh, okay. So that that did not come up in my research. No. Mm. All right. Well, let's pause. So so after the huge cast and complex special effects of his last two films, Paul Verhoeven went into the, the his next movie with a bit of a. A, kind of a bit of relief uh, you know this he was going back to his roots he his next film would be on a much smaller scale 
Uh, and it would be one that would allow the director who at this point, you know, he had become more familiar with his new American home. This is, he's already done two movies in America, and this is going to allow him to work closer with actors uh, on a script that had more intimate dialogue scenes, more complex dialogue. And the film that he ended up creating wound up being one of his most successful yet, and also his most controversial so far. Uh, and it's a film whose controversy began even before it was released and, and one that remains controversial to this day, uh, even this year, 2021, there's been recent news alleging some uh, pretty problematic behavior on the part of the director. Uh, the film, of course, that we're talking about, you probably guessed it by uh, by the mention of Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas's PP, it's Basic Instinct. There's uh, no smoking in this building, Miss Trammell. What are you going to do? Charge me with smoking? Would you tell us the nature of your relationship with Mr. Boz? I had sex with him for about a year and a half. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning. Then I got to like what he did for me. Did you kill Mr. Boz, Mr. Mel? No. You like playing games, don't you? Games are fun. It's nice. If you want to play, I can play. Everybody she plays with dies. She seduces people. She manipulates people. What's your new book about? A detective. He falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. She is screwing with your head. She's evil! She's brilliant! Why don't you let me do this for you? <clears throat> to be fair, Michael Douglas is a man who said once that he got throat cancer from giving oral sex to uh, his wife. Catherine Zeta-Jones? Catherine Zeta-Jones, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can get cancer that way. Is she, I don't think it's how it works. I don't think it's how it works at all. <laughs> Unlike, so. it, dep- it depends on how Catherine Zeta-Jones smokes cigarettes. <laughs> you know oh, I, that's, a, that's a party trick uh, <laughs> i gotta say i gotta i gotta be honest like i'm watching this movie here recently i remember like from ant-man and obviously like my michael douglas is still very very successful but i look back on movies like this and uh so it's like this and the game and some other stuff i'm like Michael Douglas was like a stud in Hollywood and I still don't get it. (laughs) Like I, I mean, I, I, that's not, I don't, it came across more rude than I meant it, but it just that he always looks like, like he, he looks the same age now as he did then. And he always looks like he was smoking a lot. And so it's amazing that he thought he got cancer any other way. And (laughs) it's like, he just, I got cancer. I guess in basic instinct, he's like got a decent build. Yeah, he's got a good build. He definitely. I mean, he's he's he a, clearly he's loves a, eating pussy. <laughs> I mean, Michael Douglas. I think what what you're getting at is like he's he's a handsome man, but he's not like your traditional Hollywood good looks kind of guy. Yeah, uh, yeah but he was a, always. That's a, I was more rough in my. And yet, <laughs> and yet, as a dude who's like when he was like 
in the sixties, he married Catherine Zeta Jones. So there's something going on. There's some, he's got some mojo. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's weird about the sex scene. Cause you're like, obviously his dick hangs down to his ankle. <laughs> so <laughs> how did he not <laughs> see when you keep, when you keep the, the set that cold, the nipples get hard and Michael's, Michael's dong shrinks up to an oh, average sh- size. <laughs> so like now oh, it fits man, in the. Uh, the I should have known area. that this is how this episode was going to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know. We're so, and then you really look over, and Jennifer Jason Lee is humping her own hand, and it's like what? <laughs> so the story of Basic Instinct's creation began in the 1980s with a writer named Joe Esterhaus. Uh, we've mentioned him on the show before. I'm sure Gary will get into that a little bit. He likes. He likes the stories about. You like the uh, you remember in the Shane Black series, Gary? Well, yeah, you yeah. I mean, that was definitely something I thought just would be valuable just to remember. Uh, yeah. just for the show was that yeah, Joe Esterhaus is the guy that's breaking out in Hollywood like Shane Black is doing, like right around the yeah the same time. And uh, so we did that whole series on Shane Black. Joe Esterhaus is the guy that was calling Shane Black and be like, "Now I just sold this screenplay for this much money." And yeah. Just you like know, they were having that whole battle. Well, Joe Esther he was having, having it was like a one-sided battle, <laughs> right? He <laughs> was just it was basically just him being a dick to Shane Black, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, Esther House is a Hungarian-born writer whose family moved to New York City when he was a kid, and then to Cleveland, which is where he spent most of his childhood. And he grew up being a writer. He became a journalist, and then went on to become the senior editor for Rolling Stone magazine from 1971 to 1975. And during that time in 1974, he was nominated for the National Book Award for his book called Charlie Simpson's Apocalypse, which is a nonfiction story about a 25-year-old farm boy who drove to a small town in Missouri, shot three people dead, and then blew his own brains out. Uh, It's a book that's kind of hard to find these days. It was kind of considered part of that, like, new journalism movement that, uh, that, like, Hunter S. Thompson was a part of. Like, he was often compared to someone like Hunter S. Thompson. This is like a feel-good story. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Esther House, you know, we're going to talk about the controversy of this film, but he courted controversy long before dipping his toe into screenwriting. So as a journalist, when he was working for the Plain Dealer in Cleveland, which is one of the bigger newspapers in the country. Uh, and during that time, he covered the aftermath of it, the collapse of a bridge that went across the Ohio River. And this article, so this article he's writing, it's supposed to be an interview of a widow of one of the people who died in the collapse. So a few months after the accident, he and a photographer visited the home of a woman named Margaret Cantrell. She wasn't home, but he talked to the children as the photographer went around and took photos. And then the resulting article focused on the family's poverty. And there was a lot of inaccuracies that he like shit that he just either made up or embellished. And he kind of made it seem as if he'd spoken to Margaret Cantrell uh, he described her mood and attitude as if he were talking to her while he was visiting the house. And she didn't like that. So she filed a lawsuit uh, for invasion of privacy and she won $60,000 in the lawsuit. Wow. That decision ended up getting overturned by the court of appeals on first amendment grounds, but then the U S Supreme court got involved and upheld the original judgment. So he basically got sued for lying as a journalist, you know, mm. uh, and, and this was, way before he starts writing movies. So he, he's a he's a polarizing figure, this guy. Have you seen, I, I'm sure in your research, Gary, you might've come across a photograph of him, but he's got like this big mane of, he looks like a lion, like this big, like manly, you know, very macho looking dude. 
uh, you know, he, he, and he comes across that way in interviews as well. He's very like, I say what I mean, kind of guy. That's it a wasn't long. It. He has a very square head and a lot of blonde hair <laughs> and, and beard and beard. Yes. Uh, it wasn't long after this controversy that Esther house began working in Hollywood and his first produced screenplay was one called fist. And that's an acronym F I S T, uh, which was a crime drama directed by Norman Jewison. It stars Sylvester Stallone. It's actually uh, Stallone's first post Rocky role. Uh, he plays a Cleveland warehouse worker who becomes involved in the labor union leadership of a fictional uh, federation of interstate truckers, FIST. Uh, the movie, uh, it did pretty well, brought in over a little over $20 million on an $8 million budget. So it wasn't like, it wasn't breaking any records, but it was enough to lead to more screenwriting work for Esther House. Then he would go on to contribute to the screenplay to the hugely successful Flashdance in 1983. And he did an uncredited rewrite on Blue Thunder that same year. I don't know. Oh. Did, yeah. I don't think uh, we came across that information. Yeah, the helicopter movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The one that we, cool. we talked about for two hours on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't talk about that particular fact, I don't think. Which yeah, I don't I don't part. think that I don't think that information ever came up came up in our research on that one. Yeah, I didn't know that until you just said it right now. Literally. Yeah, and Esther House claims to have rewritten that script, the script for Blue Thunder, in five days and claims to have come up with the ending of the film. Who knows? Because, again, this is a guy who it's kind of hard to take him at his word. Sometimes he seems like he likes to embellish. Yeah, well, you seem like you're, you've got a problem with Joe Esther House. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't necessarily, but uh, <laughs> nothing personal. Then in 1985, his screenplay for Jagged Edge was produced as a film directed by Return of the Jedi helmer Richard Marquand. Uh, it starred Glenn Close and Jeff Bridges. It was another big success, both with critics and at the box office. Then his next screenplay was a movie called Big Shots, which I had never heard of. I looked it up on IMDb. It's like a comedy uh, starring comedians that I've never heard of. Uh, but it sold for what was at the time a pretty large sum for a screenplay. It sold for $1.25 million. And his next few films, he, he you know produces three or four different screenplays after that. They weren't quite as noteworthy. But then in the early 1990s, his screenplay for Basic Instinct, which he'd begun writing a few years earlier, prompted a bidding war before being purchased by Karolko Pictures for a staggering, and I think at the time, record-breaking $3 million. It was, you know, it, there's obviously the like dick measuring contest he continues to have with like Shane Black. That was like the back and forth with like Lethal Weapon and like uh, right. all these movies. But like the main guy in this one was Mario Cassar. Uh, yeah, Cassar, Mario Cassar, who's yeah, one, of who the, is, uh, one of the two owners of Karolko. Yeah, yeah. And he had found this movie. And the big thing for him was is this guy's obviously very good or at least considered very good. And he he saw the movie he had written basic instinct as a spec, but apparently like so much detail was included in this. The value he saw in it was that we don't have to do much else with this. We don't need development. We just need to like, it's ready. Shoot like, it. yeah. Yeah. That was kind of this thing is that he's like, we're not going to have to take another six months and hire more screenwriters and pay for all the expense of that to develop it. He's like, this is script is ready to go. That was kind of, I guess his, his, reasoning behind that big that big payment for it esther house on this one he claims to have written this script in 13 days which is sort of i mean saying five days on a rewrite of blue thunder is one thing that's still 
you know, pretty impressive if that's true. But 13 days for a full script, especially a script that is pretty damn good and pretty damn complex is is impressive. And to answer your question, too, I, I just thought of it. Just I don't know why, but I couldn't remember which uh, Shane Black movie it was. But it was like this one had topped Shane Black and then Shane Black topped him with right after. With, yeah. Well, no, it's the long kiss. Good. Good night, oh, I think. Yeah. Okay. Right after this one, it was like he got three million for this one, and then Long Kiss Goodnight got four. Yeah. And so it was, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was weird. And then I think that was the highest until like M Night or something. I feel like I read somewhere who got oh, wow. like five million for signs or something really? like that. Wow. Yeah. So with uh, Karolko on board, their old collaborator, Paul Verhoeven, was, of course, along for the ride. He signed on to be the film's director. Verhoeven, he'd always wanted to do like a Hitchcockian-style thriller, and Basic Instinct seemed like the perfect opportunity. It had, you know, the blonde femme fatale character that Hitchcock was known for, uh, the story's car chase between Nick and Catherine that takes place on the curbing roads above the sea is very reminiscent of Cary Grant and Grace Kelly's drive in To Catch a Thief and of the Jimmy Stewart following Kim Novak around San Francisco in Vertigo. Uh, mm-hmm. Vertigo is a major influence on this film, at least stylistically. Uh, Verhoeven took a lot of, a lot of influence from Hitchcock on this. Yeah. yeah when cool he too. saw I mean, Vertigo, Vertigo is a classic for a reason. Like, it's, Oh yeah. And, he, and I, I didn't piece that together, but just, just hearing that, I was like that, that oh, white, yeah, there's tons. <laughs> that white outfit that she's wearing that during the interrogation scene, mm-hmm. that is taken straight out of Vertigo. Yeah. Well, another yeah. thing he did was uh huge Hitchcock fan. So he says like in most of his movies, like he, he tries to have something. And uh in this particular case, he, he does describe Vertigo as one of his favorite movies. But there are pieces he takes directly. And then there's pieces like he he, he actually says he, he sees what Hitchcock did and he wants to do the exact opposite. Like with, with the thought of like Hitchcock's an expert, but that. Let me see if I can frame this like the opposite of this in, in the same way. So, yeah. for instance, like some stuff he gives is like in, you know, uh, some of the scenes of San Francisco, he's like, you know, like uh, Hitchcock would, if Hitchcock would, if Hitchcock would shoot the Golden Gate Bridge, I would shoot the next bridge down the street. Like yeah. I would do that. <laughs> and, and so he, he would talk about like Vertigo having like uh, a lot of the scenes like where streets were involved. They're like straight like just all like connected, like straight streets and all this. So all the streets in basic instinct have very curved roads and that kind of thing. He tried to shoot like very, you know, like just the the exact opposite essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Verhoeven is not nearly as, as subtle or suggestive as Hitchcock. Like he's his philosophy, his philosophy is, has always been like, just, just do it. Just show it. You know? Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't, uh, well, which don't hint may, at it, which may come off as like in your face, but I think it's more just, it's a slant towards realism. It is in your face, always, but always, yeah. 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 But, but, but that, been, that's his style. His style yeah. is in your face. Right. Yeah. Right. But I, I've always taken it as more of a slant towards realism of like, it's uh unrestricted violence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just violence, but the sex as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And Verhoeven, he said that, you know, in interviews, he said that this is the kind of movie that Hitchcock may have made if he had been making films at the time. Here's Mm. what he said. Basic Instinct is a Hitchcock film from the 90s because it's the kind of thing that Hitchcock would perhaps have done if he had been 30 years 
Yogur. There are scripts published that Hitchcock did not shoot at the end of his life. And, and, and if you see the sexual outrageousness of some of the scenes that he wanted to do and dismissed because he would not have got them through the ratings, such as a scene of a girl sitting in the... Sh- <laughs> no, I can't do that. <laughs> sitting. Was, was, was she sitting in shit? She was sitting. <laughs> I would like to see this quote actually said by him now. Um, <laughs> sitting in the foreground with her lover while her husband is coming up in a boat behind her and she is masturbating for the guy in the foreground. That was a scene that he wanted to do, which was basically be perfect for Basic Instinct 2. <laughs> Turn an adult member. <laughs> it was it was kind of like it was kind of like if he was in the room and people kept turning on things, so he kept having to speak louder and louder. <laughs> the more excited you got, the more you turned into gold member. I think it's fine. I think I think the people. I mean, gold members. It. Gold member is is Dutch, right? So <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> so he's gold member, but someone just started a vacuum cleaner like right over here. <laughs> well, I, the thing is, like when you watch, the more I watch Verhoeven in interviews, like that, he's very animated. Like that is, he's always smiling and very happy about what he's talking about. As we went through like, the series, I mean, that's <laughs> like I'm doing that. People can't see that's, it, but like I'm a hundred percent getting more animated because I see him. That's what he. Comes. Constantly doing yeah. that, like yeah. his hands are all over the place. Yeah, he's just he's he's super stoked about this, and and even <laughs> about things that you're like, I don't think you should be excited about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when Verhoeven signed on, he began suggesting changes for, to the script that Esther House disagreed with. Uh, one of which was a lesbian sex scene that Esther House considered exploitative, right. and he disagreed with a lot of stuff. Like uh, when Verhoeven came on, he's like. Listen, when we do this, we're going to shoot it just like it says in the script. We're not going to have people, you know, during the sex scenes, we're not going to have people covered up by blankets or in the shadows. He's like, you're going to see it. Like what's in the script is going to be on screen. But Esther House didn't really see it being shot that way, I guess. And this caused a lot of tension between Verhoeven and the screenwriter, uh, which I don't know if you guys are sensing a pattern here, but this is, I think, happened on every movie so far that we've talked about. Yeah. Uh, but this led to Esther House and producer Erwin Winkler to actually lead the production, at least temporarily. So with Esther House gone, Verhoeven hired Gary Goldman. Remember, he had contributed a lot to Total Recall's final script. Uh, he, he was hired to work on it. And Goldman wrote four different rewrites of the script at the advice of Verhoeven. And then after the fourth rewrite, and this is also becoming a pattern with, with Verhoeven, uh, after the fourth rewrite, Verhoeven admitted that his proposal his proposals were quote undramatic and really stupid. <laughs> so, <laughs> so by the fifth draft, the script had basically reverted back to Esther House's original script with only some very minor visual and dialogue changes, which led to Esther House actually receiving sole writing credit for the film. I think Goldman is credited as like a script consultant on it, but he he did not get a screenwriting credit on it. Is that uncharacteristic for Verhoeven to? Basically, I mean, that seems like a pretty big move for him to just be like, oh, yeah, my idea was shit. <laughs> no, he did that on uh, RoboCop when he oh, kept okay. trying to tell Rob Bottin to change the to change the um, 
the the costume remember he kept telling him to change the costume and eventually he's like yeah my ideas were dumb we should just go back (laughs) to your original idea he does it more than one time on here he does it on the on the uh score as well uh Uh, he he suggested some stuff and jerry goldsmith changed some stuff based on his suggestions and they went back to the original one because everyone (laughs) thought it was better well and i have i have a question is uh is erwin winkler any relation to henry winkler i don't know the answer to that question okay i imagine there are quite a few winklers out there yeah there might be i was just wondering no i i honestly have no idea erwin winkler is kind of a i mean he's a he's an old school movie producer like he did raging bull and you know like he he's done uh, goodfellas he's done a lot of stuff for scorsese he's like a classic cool old school he's still around i don't think he's producing anymore dude's like 90 years old but i was gonna yeah, say he, how old he's like he's a he's a legendary he's... um movie producer wow. i looked I, I you know as you guys were discussing this i was trying to do the old uh google machine and uh i don't see that mentioned anywhere interestingly enough uh now that we're talking about him, but uh, his parents were vaudeville performers. Uh, but yeah, he has three sons, Charles, David, and Adam. And uh, Charles and David are both producers and directors. Nice. Uh, Family they, business. Yeah. And his other son is a professor of constitutional law at the UCLA School of Law. Nice. Wow. And to, to answer my own question of whether he's still producing, he looks like he is because he produced The Irishman. That was his last credit uh, again wow. for Scorsese. So, yeah, he's still he's still working on stuff. Wrap Ooh. it up, Erwin. Jesus. <laughs> Retire already. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> All right. So originally considered for the lead role of Nick uh, were Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, and Richard Gere, all of which I think would make uh, pretty good choices for this. I kind Kevin of think Costner, of who Kevin I Costner would, would be last for me. I could yeah, see he, Gibson or Gear before I could see Costner. Well, Costner at this time, especially, it, it was hard to see him as like a a darker character. Mm. You know, I I think like because he always kind of played like nice guys or good guys. You know, this, and, and, this would have been this would have been post Field of Dreams, right? Right after oh. Field of Dreams, probably. I think Field of okay. Dreams was eighty nine or so. Yeah, uh, but now watching him on something like yellowstone where he plays a darker character i could i could see it but yeah at at the time i agree i think the other two would be better uh in the end the part of course as we know was awarded to michael douglas who'd already played a similar role in 1987's fatal attraction and he would do it again in 1994 with disclosure those are considered i think the michael douglas horny trilogy (laughs) is what they're known as it's hitchcockian <laughs> I see what you did. Professional there. comedian, writer, <laughs> available for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. Still no bar mitzvahs. <laughs> I can't crack the bar mitzvah market. <laughs> it's really tough. It's a it's a tough market. Uh, <laughs> one of the, so one of the benefits to having Douglas in the role was that he had actually been trained as a driver. Uh, he was like a race car driver. Uh, So that during the car chase where he's cutting in and out of oncoming traffic while driving on a mountainside without guardrails, there's like a 500 foot drop into the sea. uh, That's actually Michael Douglas driving the car. That's not a stunt driver. He did his own stunt driving in it, which is is kind of cool. There was a time on the set. This is a fun, fun might not be the right word. It's an interesting story that I I found out about the making of this. So one time on set, uh, Verhoeven's got a bloody nose. His nose is bleeding. And this rumor grew on set that, Michael Douglas had grown so angry with Verhoeven that he had punched him in the nose. And it wasn't 
due to like Verhoeven being verbally abusive or anything like that, but it was because he felt that he had not been giving enough compliments by the director uh, or like you know, positive affirmations by the director. Uh, but the truth is what it was, was that Verhoeven found Michael Douglas so good and so professional as an actor needing so few takes that Verhoeven didn't feel the need to really talk to him or giving it, him any direction he's like this guy's doing fine on his own um <laughs> it was later revealed that Verhoeven's nosebleed was actually due to like just being stressed out and tense and not from being punched by Michael Douglas <laughs> yeah that's a weird story but you know Michael Douglas was pretty heavy as far as like uh the weight of your reputation and and power on the set goes like Michael Douglas was a big part of this movie just he like was, oh, he was cast like not necessarily in the order that we've been talking here he came on before Verhoeven ever did. Yeah, and so like Verhoeven, like I, I remember hearing he was not even sure who Esterhaus was. Like it was like when somebody told him, uh, "What was it, Jagged Edge?" Jagged or, Edge. Yeah, yeah. He was like, "Okay, all right, I've seen that. That's good." You know, like he was like, "All right, that's fine." He was in at that point, but then with like Michael Douglas, Michael Douglas had the almost like I, I, it sounds like the Schwarzenegger power with this one. Like he was he was involved in most decisions that yeah. occurred with this movie. And speaking of which, the studio, they wanted an established actress for the role of Catherine, uh, the other lead. And Douglas made some, he had a lot of thoughts about this as we're going to find out. And he suggested Kim Basinger, but she declined. Uh, but of course, as we know, a lot of actresses declined <laughs> this movie. Some of those that were approached and turned it down included Gina Davis Michelle Pfeiffer, Ellen Barkin, Melanie Griffith, Emma Thompson, Julia Roberts. Uh, they all turned it down generally because of the full frontal nudity that the part would require. And Verhoeven has said that, like, he said that there's no negotiating here. This is, you know, what's in the script is what I'm going to shoot. And you have to be willing to do that or don't take the role. Well, it's nice that he put that on front street. Yeah. It, it's it's weird like to even hear he's very even to this day very giddy about that aspect of it it was like yeah oh, i told him i told yeah, him i'm like this is it i've storyboarded i drew all of the scenes you're going to do all of the scenes exactly like i drew them and it's going to be this way and if you don't want to do it then don't be here better to do that than to have it a surprise yeah, later on yeah. or, or or somebody try to negotiate out of those scenes that he felt were necessary to the film you know, well, at, at least it, he put at least he put all his cards on the table. Yeah, yeah, well, so it got to a point, from my understanding, that like Michael Douglas was just like, let's get a no name, let's not settle in, and Verhoeven actually had like Sharon Stone came in to read, mm -hmm. and he thought she was perfect immediately. But the thing was, is like you know, even at that point, for better or worse, like he apparently like sat down with Sharon Stone as like, you're gonna do this, and. Whatever I tell you is what you do. You never argue with me. Yeah. Like you never say anything else. You accept that what I say, I know best and you just do it and trust yeah. me that I am telling you the right thing to do. And you shake my hand right now. And if you, you know, if you can't do this, you do not get this role. And, yeah. uh, so she did. <laughs> but Yeah. I mean, he, he put it all out there on the table, but before shooting ever began, and he took a big risk by casting Sharon Stone because she was a relative unknown at the time. Mm. Uh, you know, she she had done like she's got like 18 movie credits before this, but nothing notable. You know, she had been in Total Recall. She had done a lot of 
you know, episode here, episode there of TV shows, you know, Magnum PI, TJ Hooker, stuff like that. She was in Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. That was probably one of her few lead roles, but that's uh, not Wes Craven's finest hour. It was, it was like pre nightmare. It was between, I think the Hills have eyes and nightmare on Elm street somewhere around there. Anyway, nothing notable. Her, her career was not really taking off and she's 32 years old when she gets this role, which in Hollywood years, like if you haven't broken in by that time, your chances are slim of breaking in. And she actually took this. She was actually like, if I don't get this role, I'm quitting basically I'm quitting acting. Cause this is like my last chance. She's like, I'm going to age out of the kind of roles that I'm trying to get, which if you look at Sharon soul now, you know that that's not the case. Cause she, she still looks very young, much younger than she actually is. Verhoeven, you know, she, he had been really impressed by her performance in total recall, particularly in the scene where she quickly changes her emotion right before her character is killed off, you know, uh, where she like changes from evil to like trying to be sweet and talk him out of killing her. Uh, here's what he said about that. That transition for me was so notable. The evil in her eyes changes into the love of her life in a couple of seconds. You you understand why that's a major aspect of why he would want to cast her in this role, because she does have to play almost like dual parts of that personality in this film. Mm-hmm. But Michael Douglas wasn't always convinced that you get getting he eventually obviously came around. But he initially thought that getting a no-name actress was going to be bad for the film, or it's rather bad for him, because he knew just from reading the script that there was going to be a lot of controversy around this film. And he wanted that weight to be on someone else's shoulders, not just on his. He said, quote, I needed someone to share the risks of this movie. I don't want to be up there all by myself. There's going to be a lot of shit flying around, Uh, which... (laughs) That's very prescient of him. You know, he knew when he read this, he's like, people are going to be mad about this movie. And I don't want to be the only one whose name is on that poster. That's recognizable. Probably a good call. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, this comes back to like, Hey, (laughs) it's, he's very self-aware. He knows the types of movies he makes. And he, at this point definitely knows how American audiences react to them. And even though he feels strongly about this, it's, it's great foresight to be like, hey, let's put some other names on this poster. <laughs> yeah, but but his refusal to work with someone who was unknown made it difficult for someone like Sharon Stone to get the part. Yeah. So she says, this is early on in the casting process. This is actually from her, her recent autobiography that came out earlier this year. Uh, she says that her manager actually had to break into the casting director's office. He had to Jimmy open the, the lock with a credit card. And they stole the script just so that she could read it because she was she had knew about this and she wanted to watch it, but no nobody was giving her the script, so they stole it. And then her manager called Verhoeven every day for like seven or eight months to try to get her a screen test on this. And it wasn't until twelve other actresses had turned down the role that she got that screen test because it wasn't until everyone else started turning it down that Michael Douglas was like, okay. I'll screen test with this person. Maybe we do need a no-name actress because none of the none of the A-listers are gonna take this role. At some point you kind of have to at some at some point you you wonder what's the breaking point of like, okay, at this point I'm just hindering the production. Let's move on. And of course, as we now know, she got the part. Uh, but then on her first day of shooting, she kind of lost all of her confidence and she wasn't giving the performance that 
Verhoeven had wanted. She was kind of slipping in and out of character. Verhoeven, you know, he's kind of frustrated. So he stops filming, pulls her aside, and he's kind of trying to convince her that, hey, you can play this part. Like I saw, I've seen you do this. I know that you can do it. I hired you because I know you can do this. Uh, He's like, you can play this part of this, this woman who can be charming and diabolical at the same time, like evil and cunning at the same time. It's uh, he, he had to kind of give her her self-confidence back because, again, she'd never played a role this prominent in a film. And then the next day, as if by magic, she had transformed into this cold, lethal character that would eventually make her a household name. Yeah, uh, and that's kind of I feel like there's I feel like a little bit of Catherine has been in almost every role since even, you know, even just a little bit because uh, we we watched her in ratchet the sort of prequel to one flew over the cuckoo's nest oh yeah and, yeah yeah and it's uh it's wild to see but you know in watching this you're like okay we're still doing a little bit of Catherine here <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it is notable one thing about the filming of this that no body doubles were used in the film sex scenes that was something that Verhoeven insisted on no body doubles even in the film's opening scene where you see a blonde woman whose face we never see in that scene you never fully see who it is uh, you know, she's straddling a man d- during sex before stabbing him to death with an ice pick. That was Sharon Stone, even though you couldn't see her face like she played the part in that opening scene. And uh, by the way, the, the 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 stabbing. Did you guys watch the director's cut? Yeah, I did. And what's interesting is you're saying that. But like as I was watching it um, in, in the commentary, they mentioned they thought it was an extra. They weren't sure. Um, they, they were saying Rob Bettine actually created the that's body not Rob Bottin. that he 100 <laughs> ro- says rob Bottin created the body that's down there that's getting stabbed well the dude yeah the dude because they didn't but they actually, said it's an extra and he said that uh jean de bont that verhoven says he was standing over her shoulder spraying blood onto the guy and it was jean de bont that was down there like directing him like more 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 and they were spraying the blood and they said that the girl uh because they had a story on the the commentary say that she almost passed out because there was so much blood and she was stabbing into this fake body well see i i've heard that same story but i heard it that it was sharon stone who almost passed out yeah maybe I, so, i'm just saying in the commentary they were they were talking about like she was some girl like they were like, yeah but i mean again this is another one of those situations where Hey, this was 30 years ago and people are trying to rely yeah. on their memory, but yeah. uh, the, all the information I found said that that was actually Sharon Stone in that opening scene. So it could just be, they are misremembering or they may have had uh, somebody else doing the actual stabbing because there was an effect involved. And yes, like Gary said, that's Rob Boutine who created the effect, but in the director's cut, that stabbing is pretty brutal like this ice pick goes through the guy's nose yeah uh, like i did not remember it being that like graphic and oh i was it watching it i was like a hundred i was like fuck paul verhoven you still got that like brutal fucking killing yeah. in here like, you still <laughs> he got sure, one at least he's sure he got a couple of them because there's that elevator one later on yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh but verhoven he's praised uh sharon stone for uh, her audacious and brave performance during these scenes I could not have worked it this way with a known actress. It was because she had nothing to lose that I was able to push her to give her so much of herself. Uh, 
it, it, it's ironic, I think, given the context of this quote that Stone later claimed that Verhoeven tricked her into bearing her genitals in the now famous interrogation scene. Uh, so th- we got to get into this. I mean, if you're talking about this movie, you got to talk about especially the iconic story. Iconic well, scene. Well, well, the scene is iconic. Yes. And we will yeah. definitely talk about that. But uh, as far as the filming of the scene, so Sharon Stone says that the director and this is or she's said this in the past. She goes into a lot of detail in her, her uh, recent uh, autobiography, but she says that the director asked her to remove her white underwear only because they were causing a distracting reflection. He was like, you know, saying, Hey, they're going to be able to tell that you're wearing panties and your character's not supposed to be in this scene because, you know, we'd seen her get dressed earlier. And obviously based on a quote she has later on, uh, but he, according to her, never said that they were going to use a shot of her private parts in in the film. She says that she didn't know about the shot at all until the film was screened for her. So she, she goes to a a screening with a bunch of studio people, sees the scene for the first time. And afterwards she went into the projection booth, which is where Verhoeven was screening the film for the studio and slapped him across the face. And then she immediately left and called her lawyer. Her lawyer told her that per the screen actors guild, they should not, or they could not shoot up her skirt like that without her permission. And he's like, besides, they can't release that. It's going to get the movie an X rating, which mm-hmm. we know didn't happen. But eventually, Stone, you know, she says that she decided to let the scene exist in the film. She had examined the character and decided that it was, and this is a quote from her, it was correct for the film and for the character. And because, after all, I did it. Because she did. I mean, she did that on set. For his part, Verhoeven does deny that Stone was misled. Uh, earlier this year, actually, while he was promoting his new film, ben, ben, Benedetta, at the Cannes Film Festival, he told Variety, uh, quote, my memory is radically different from Sharon's memory. Uh, here, here's a conti- actually a continuation of that quote. Her version is impossible. She knew exactly what she was doing. I told her it was based on a story of a woman. I knew when I was a student who did the crossing of her legs without panties regularly at parties and my friend told her we could see her vagina and she said of course that's why i do it and then sharon and i decided to do a similar sequence and that's true like on everything i've ever seen of paul verhoeven just for the record from back then until now everything i can find about paul verhoeven talking about this he has said like no i went to school and there yeah. was a girl at parties who would do this very same thing. And my friend was like, hey, uh, I don't know if you know this, but when you're doing this, people see the vagina. You have a JJ's flash it out. And she's like, <laughs> I know that's why I do it. Yeah. Like even on the, the Blu-ray, which I think me and Gary have the same one, that director's cut Blu-ray. Uh, there's a making of documentary on there that's at least 10, 15 years old, probably. It's not a new documentary. That shows the scene an obnoxious amount of times. And it, it like slow it <laughs> it slow it slows it down and it zooms in. Looks they're so talking you guys about it like this was so you a guys... controversial scene, and then they keep showing it. I was watching that documentary, I was like, God dang. They do. Like, they they like they slow down ridiculous. the speed. <laughs> Look, so you guys don't bre- break your Blu-ray players. We've done it for you. Here it is. <laughs> They're but, like, this scene. Do you remember this scene? Do you remember- the what? Here, wait, look. You can see her pussy. This scene. <laughs> look at, no. But did you see Sharon Stone's pussy? 
in this scene. Did you see it? One more time. <laughs> on, in that documentary, which, you know, like I said, it's like 10 or 15 years old. He, he tells that same story. So this is not like him coming up with a story to explain after Sharon Stone's autobiography came out in 2021. Like this is a this is a version of the story that he's been telling for years. Mm. And Verhoeven he says that that the light crossing scene, just like the film sex scenes, was shot at the end of the day with only a minimal crew. And he says that Stone watched and approved the scene on a video monitor afterwards. Now we're not making judgment one way or the other. Clearly one of them, either Stone or Verhoeven, is either misremembering or or flat out lying about the circumstances. But again, keep in mind, this happened more than 30 years ago. Uh, so in memory is, is a funny thing. But I, I think that it is important to present all points of view. We're not going to decide on who's right and who's lying and who's telling the truth here. Uh, you guys can decide that on your own. Uh, but I, I thought it was important to kind of present both points of view on that. No, and it is. And also, I mean... I'm not taking up for Paul Verhoeven. There's definitely points in the commentary and in interviews that I've seen him that I'm like, you sound kind of like a creep because he, uh, in, in when he did the handshake deal that like, you're going to do these sex scenes the way that I say, don't argue with me. You know, like you have to agree to everything I say as she did it, but he definitely is like, and she had nothing to lose. You know, so yeah. she did it, you know, he's like, what else is she going to do? Like it always, you know, but it gives that impression of like, wow. So you took advantage of a person who just like needed a breakout role. So yeah, it's, yeah. so there's, it definitely, it definitely works both ways. Like it's, uh, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's one of those well, situations. Well, regardless, I mean, what they created is one of the most famous movie scenes of all time. Like one of the, yeah. not, not, and not just because of that shot, that shot, obviously creates a lot of conversation around the film because that's just not something that you see in, in an American mainstream movie. Right. But the scene itself is incredibly well done. Like it's shot by Yandabant. The, the, the way that he shoots it is so good uh, because it's lit in a way that is not realistic at all. I mean, a, a, an interrogation room doesn't look like that. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> it does not look like that. Uh, but it looks really cool. It looks great. The story of this film to me, just in general, is it, it's that uh, I keep saying Jod, so I appreciate you. Yad Nabat. Uh, Yad Nabat is fantastic as a cine cinematographer. And oh, in yeah. this movie, He's really good. He fucking soars. Like it, it's just ridiculous. And it's just, I mean, from, yes, the interrogation scene is is the big one because yeah it's ridiculous like why why ever would an interrogation room be lit this way <laughs> right. and you don't think about it at the time no it just it just is and uh but but even in like where the scene she's in the car and she's got like a halo around her head like he's got yeah. the lighting just like set up perfectly like there's a moment where every she scene. says something in that scene where she says some i can't remember what the line is but she says something kind of uh revelatory and this what looks like it's like sunlight coming through the car but it hits her face at just that right moment where right it's so good like, yeah he's really just good. he's just on his game in this yeah. movie yonder bond is fantastic it's like brilliant yeah and, and and the the interrogation scene itself is also a major character moment for for both her and for for nick but especially for her like you see in the scene immediately like she is in charge 
Like she's in charge. She, she, she might as well be in, I mean, she basically is interrogating them. Like yeah. when she says, Nick, Hey, Nick, have you ever fucked on cocaine? Like she's asking him the questions and they're the ones that are kind of back in the dark uh, with the shadows over the face. She's in the light. It's almost like the tables have been turned, but it's, it's in this scene that you see that like Catherine knows exactly what she's doing. She's got them in the palm of her hand. All yeah. these, these dudes, like she, she is the mastermind. It, she is, this is the main, this scene's kind of the main piece of it, but just the movie overall, like she is, I think one of the best movie characters to come out of the nineties. Like it's just an incredibly realized character, both from a writing and directing and performance standpoint. Well, I said it when we first started talking about this scene, it, the whole thing, top to bottom, it's iconic. What we, one thing we know about, it, we, we hinted at this a little bit, I think in our intro, but one thing we know about the, Production is that in the the sex scenes of which there are several. I don't know if you guys remember. Uh, there's a few, but <laughs> Verhoeven storyboarded the sex scenes with precision. Like he he planned every angle and movement as if he were shooting a fight scene. That's impressive. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if he did it in stick figures. Like <laughs> no, he did stick not. figures. Actually, <laughs> they were very detailed drawings. They were. Uh, yeah, it was really weird. Uh, <laughs> In most Hollywood movies today, you know, if they fuck, it's only done to show that they're fucking, isn't it? I, they put themselves on top of each other and all of the movies start saying a lot dissolves. Dissolve to the knees, dissolve to this, dissolve to that. And that's it. Ah! And they fall down. And that's the scene. A scene needs something more than that. Otherwise, why show it? It's like walking. You don't show people walking if they aren't going somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> Well, hi, Mark. <laughs> but he's right. I think the way that many of the sex scenes in this film, like they have a purpose and an underlying tension to them that w they're not just there to be sex scenes. Like they, they're part of the storytelling. Uh, like the sex scene where Nick and Catherine are, uh, they're like struggling over who's going to be on top. That there's This is a potential murder scene in mm -hmm. the audience's eyes. And he shoots it that way. There's a lot of tension to it. That's more than just, it's not just there for like titillation. Like it's there. So that like you're watching her in the same position that she was in that very first scene. And you don't know if she's about to murder him. Like she is, she fighting to be on top so that she can kill him the way that, that she killed Johnny, Johnny Boz at the beginning of the movie. Mm. Uh, it's, it's really like, it's really interesting. And I can't, I honestly can't think of another movie that, that does that. Debbie does Dallas. No, no, no murder in that one. Oh, yeah. She doesn't kill it that you know of, Justin. That's true. <laughs> so with Basic Instinct, Verhoeven brought the kind of sexual explicitness that he had exhibited with his European films to a Hollywood production. And unsurprisingly, the MPAA was not too thrilled about it. He's, he does not uh, get along with the MPAA. No, <laughs> Verhoeven always pushing buttons. What's yeah. this dude's problem? So this film, just like Robocop, just like Total Recall, had to be submitted and resubmitted several times, nine times to be exact, before it could get an R rating. So to appease the MPAA, he had to cut about 42 seconds of film, which doesn't sound like a lot. But according to Verhoeven, the shots weren't trimmed so much as they were replaced with alternate shots that were less graphic in their sex and violence. This included some of the more explicit shots during the sex scenes, uh, like Nick going down on Catherine. And they didn't they didn't want that in the, in movie theaters. Uh, plus some of uh, the bloodier moments in the opening scene and in the uh, later elevator stabbing. 
Uh, one thing they didn't have to trim was any footage of Michael Douglas's dog because he had a clause in his contract that said that there would be no full frontal nudity from him. Uh, Verhoeven had initially wanted, he, he was initially determined to put the very first erect penis in an American mainstream film and basic it's, instinct. It's important to have goals. You know, it is. <laughs> it's important to have something to work for. <laughs> And the MPAA, they weren't the only ones that had issues with the film. So gay rights activists actually protested the film, saying that it followed a pattern of negative depictions of homosexuality, of homosexuals in film. So during the filming, they're filming in San Francisco, and the protesters would disrupt the shoot by throwing paint bombs. Uh, they'd blow whistles during take. They'd get people to honk their horns, like in passing cars. They, they held up signs saying, like, honk if you love the 49ers. And I was going like to say, that. that was the clever part. They yeah. were just like, they're in San Francisco. And yeah, everyone loves the 49ers. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's clever. So, uh, yeah, but they, they just didn't like this depiction of a, a, uh, a bisexual character as evil in the film. Mm. So eventually Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus agreed to meet with representatives from GLAAD and other activist groups. And when they had that meeting, the protesters demanded that changes be made to the script. Uh, keep in mind, movies already shooting. So, yeah. But they wanted the script rewritten. They wanted dialogue rewritten. They wanted to recast the film to make it less homophobic and less misogynistic, or as I said, they would continue to disrupt the shoot. They suggested that the lead role of Nick should be changed to a lesbian detective to show that a homosexual character could be the hero. Uh, they wanted Kathleen Turner in the role, which is an actress who is ironically not a lesbian. Uh, so I thought that was a little bit odd, <laughs> but uh, they wanted the killer to either be changed to a man or that Catherine and Roxy should murder women as well as men to show that bisexuals and lesbians are not just viewed as man haters and man killers. Uh, and remember, we talked about this earlier that Esther House had walked off of the picture for a, a time early in its production because he felt that Verhoeven's approach to the sex scenes was too explicit and threatened to make the movie pornographic. Mm. Well, after after meeting with the protesters and hearing their side, he actually ended up siding with them, saying that his eyes had been open to the insensitivity and stereotyping of his own screenplay. Now, he knew of course, that recasting and reshooting would not be feasible. That would cost millions of dollars. But he did make some alterations to his script for stuff that had not been shot yet. Uh, so now he had Nick asking Beth's permission before they have rough sex, whereas in the film it comes across a lot, pretty rapey in that scene. Yeah, uh, He had Nick make a comment that, uh, there's a quote saying, a lot of the best people I've met in this town are gay, which seems like you're just, that feels like you're just, Two horning that in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he also wanted a disclaimer at the start of the film that said the movie you're about to see is fiction, as if anyone would have had any confusion about that. <laughs> but Verhoeven <laughs> rejected these changes, uh, which actually put him in this really weird position of defending a script against the script's own writer, which is wow. just kind of absurd. Yeah. Uh, Esther House would end up publicly disowning and denouncing his original script. Although I'm willing to bet he didn't give back the $3 million that he was paid for it. There you go. <laughs> but after seeing the, uh, after seeing the finished product, he did agree that Verhoeven had been right not to make the changes. He, he found that, that the script as is uh, was pretty, pretty good. Yeah. 
it's tough man it's it's one of those things that like uh, you know we'll 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 not have to get so political or anything on any of these shows but change is tough social change is tough and it's like for I, I truly do believe that a guy like Verhoeven, who is Dutch, like we've talked about, like where he comes from, homosexuality was never a thing. Like, I mean, not, not, like, not, it, it wasn't exist. a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. Like, yeah. it was just part of life. It was part of culture. Yeah. It was never frowned upon or, I mean, you know, like several of his other, several of his Dutch films feature prominent homosexual characters including the fourth man which is seen as kind of a spiritual prequel to this movie i mean we talked about some of the problematic nature of of the way that some of the homosexual characters are treated in spetters but uh yeah it wasn't like anything that he even really thought about because in in the in uh the netherlands where he's from it's just the way somebody is you know good you know whether you're good or evil like your sexuality isn't a factor in that yeah, so just to 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 be fair, like in a in a broad view of this thing, I mean that's what he's he's thinking. He's thinking bringing attention to this is making it an issue, and this is yeah. not an issue. Like it's just he they're in San Francisco, and this person is bi, and this person is gay, and it doesn't matter either way. That's just a side note in this story. And, uh, and I, and I kind of do believe him that, that he felt that way, but for people in San Francisco, uh, the, the, the gay community at the time, especially they were like, we're being mistreated. This is, a, uh, you know, we, our representation has been in such a way that like, we're always like the bad guys or, or that we're, our lifestyle is, you know, always, always, shown in such a way anyway for them having it be a lesbian killer or a bisexual killer or the bisexual killer ends up with the man at the end of the thing or all of these things they're like you know i think Verhoeven says it's like political and it's probably true i mean because this was a widely distributed movie and this was a big deal but I'm also not frowning on them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, no, I mean, I, I, I totally see. angry. And yeah. I also think, I think that multiple things can be true at the same time. Like, I, I think that Verhoeven is not thinking about it that way. And he's just like, for him, it's like, you bring attention to this, that makes it a thing. And they're like, you're not thinking about this. So it's a thing. And it's just a, it's a weird crossroads. Well, mm. this is something, you know, th this representation that they were, protesting against didn't originate with basic instinct this is something that's been happening in, in movies for since the beginning of movies you know uh if you want a really good discussion about that go watch a documentary called the celluloid closet uh i i think it's on criterion channel as of this recording i think uh really outstanding a documentary about gay representation in film going back to the beginning of the medium but this was something that was gaining traction and you got to think this is the early 1990s this is in you know the middle of the aids crisis and I was about that, that being viewed as the crisis. as the gay plague uh, as a lot of people were calling it you know uh so there there's a lot of attention on this and they saw this movie coming to their town their city of san francisco which is a very gay friendly city and it basic instinct was just in the right place 
for them for it to become the object like the target of their protest mm-hmm. you know uh like there there are because san francisco is a gay friendly town there are several gay activist groups that are centered there and this movie comes to their town that they can finally have some way to get their message out and it wasn't like they had a grudge against michael douglas or or paul verhoven it was this movie represented the things that they had been trying to fight against for mm-hmm. years yeah and it, and it's a weird situation because it's tough because like their point makes sense and verhoven's makes sense and uh he's the guy that out of a lot of filmmakers would be happy to show you whatever on screen and he doesn't care and yeah. uh and you, and you can believe that and, and and he's also the person that like you can't offend with your protesting because he describes the situation as like it was exciting yeah. and so like you know they're causing the honking and stuff and he said he was never bothered like he he described he said i i, I want to think it was the first movie we talked about but like with rutger Hauer, he said one of his favorite things that rutger ever said to him was uh uh you know, like in any situation, a little bit of war, not so bad. <laughs> and he's like, and that was it. We were cautiously at war. And that was yeah. fun. It kept everybody energized. <laughs> yeah. And, and he defended the protesters' rights to free speech. Like he, he didn't think that he thought that their uh, protest was mis, uh, was aimed at the wrong thing. But he he defended it. He's like, yeah, they're they're allowed to protest this movie as much as I'm allowed to make this movie. And right. so he never he never denounced them. Uh, right, he, he, exactly. did, he denounced their their tactics, but not their right to protest. Mm. Uh, and once the film was released, the protests continued. Uh, activists would picket theaters to try to get moviegoers not to attend. Uh, they would carry signs that said "Kiss my ice pick." Uh, that Hollywood promotes anti-gay violence. Uh, once some of the signs just said Catherine did it. Like they just gave away the end of the movie <laughs> in hopes that it would keep <laughs> people from going to see it. Uh, and in the end, uh, they probably did contribute to a legit and important conversation about how homosexuals are portrayed on film. But what they didn't do was hurt the film's box office. In fact, they probably helped. it. Uh, we've talked about this on the show before, but you start trying to censor something and it's going to make everyone want to see it. Yeah. Every single every fucking damn time. time. Yep. Every time. So stop it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, and it's tough because there's a lot of things and there's a lot of awful things that have a that legitimately do have a bad message. But I'm telling you, I I don't know. Maybe this is uh libertarian, Gary, or something. I don't know. But I do feel like generally when you censor things, that only makes people want to see what the fuck you're talking about yeah, more. I agree. Yeah. 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 So in this case, when the film was released on March 20th, 1992, it grossed $15 million its opening weekend. Eventually went on to gross over $352 million worldwide, which made it the fourth highest grossing movie of 1992. Uh, the top three films, the ones that made more than it, by the way, were Aladdin. That was the top grossing movie of the year. Uh, the Bodyguard and Home Alone 2 starring um, Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, there was, other, there was best talk actor of, that year. There was, <laughs> there was talk of Sharon Stone showing her pussy in Aladdin and Home Alone 2, but um, th- that would have caused they, an issue with In Trump. Aladdin, they refer no, to it as the Cave God, of Wonders. The Cave that of was... Wonders! 
<laughs> you mixed that up. It was um, it was actually during Trump's campaign that you're talking about. Oh, like, grab okay. her by the pussy. Oh, okay, oh, all right. That was yeah. Was. Uh, if yeah. you want a good idea of of other movies, the, the other movies in the top ten of 1992 that Basic Instinct beat out, and got, think this is a hard R thriller. R. There's no special effects. You know, this is not this is not the kind of movie that would be the top four movie of the year in 2021. It's not a franchise. It's not a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie or anything like that. You know, this is a, a movie made for adults. Mm-hmm. But in the year that it came out, the movies that were in the top 10 that made less money than Basic Instinct included Lethal Weapon 3, Batman Returns, A Few Good Men, Sister Act, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and Wayne's World. That's a hell of a top 10. I'm going to be honest yeah. with you, and it is strictly because of Sheriff Stahl's vagina. <laughs> I'm not saying strictly, but that probably contributed. Did you just watch this movie? It's because of Sheriff's Hall's vagina. <laughs> Listen, we've already talked about things that should not be censored. <laughs> Thank you for that point, Todd. I thought yeah. you were going to continue. Uh, I thought you were going to continue, and then it just... <laughs> nope. I know, you just like kind of shut down. All the time. <laughs> it's, like, it's super weird. Uh, yeah, but... No, I, I I will say like when your friends ask you if they want to get into Cinema Shock, which episode that should they listen to? Uh, one of the questions you could ask them is, "Do you like the word pussy? <laughs> if so, if so, listen the, to basic the basic instinct <laughs> episode is your <laughs> your best bet, <laughs> or maybe the um, the they call her one eye, the thriller, a cruel thing. <laughs> I feel like it got said a few times in that one. Definitely got seen in that movie." Yeah, uh, and the version I watched. Sure. So <laughs> this movie, so Basic Instinct comes oh, out. I audiences covered that. <laughs> audiences <laughs> loved it, but critical reviews were mixed. Uh, Janet Maslin of the New York Times gave the film a pretty positive review, saying, "Quote: Basic Instinct transfers Mr. Verhoeven's flair for action-oriented material to the realm of Hitchcockian intrigue, and the results are viscerally effective, even when they don't make sense." And uh, then on the other hand, Roger Ebert. Gave the film two out of four stars, saying it was, quote, like a like a crossword puzzle. Keeps your interest until you solve it. Then it's just a worthless scrap with the spaces filled in. So, uh, But that's kind of how it was split. Like some people. That's why Ebert's famous, by the way, because it's fucking fantastic. review. That's a great review. (laughs) That is is a great quote. Honestly, I love this. I mean, I've said it before on the show, like Roger Ebert is the most famous film critic to ever live for a reason. Like, even when I disagree with him. Yeah, no, he's good. That's yeah, I, he's I good. just said that was the moment. Like, you said that one, and I was like, I just want to take a step back to acknowledge Robert Ebert. So he's pretty good. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's, good. The space is filled in. Is that a euphemism? It could be, mm. knowing Roger Ebert. He's a horny okay. bastard. All right. Uh, was. <laughs> so. He was not. A, and, and, well, yeah, that's what's weird about him, because he was not afraid to, like, show some hard dick on camera. Like he was, he was not afraid to show some, some F in the P, you know what I'm saying? F in the P. (laughs) Well, anyway, speaking of critics, Gary. Yeah. I'm willing to bet that there are a few internet critics, armchair critics, we'll call them, who, uh, who didn't love this movie. I, I cannot imagine what kind of reviews have been found, uh, for, for this segment on this movie. Uh, why don't you let us know? 
Well, you know, Justin, when it comes to basic instinct, uh, if the movie doesn't do it, once you finally see the vagina, uh, then you're you're good to go, and uh, the rest will put you to sleep. And so for all those people that need a nap, we've got some reviews. <laughs> of my best lead in but here it is (laughs) ben says uh half star i'm not exaggerating but this film should be designated as a war crime so nobody ever has to watch it (laughs) joe says uh hooray for the most unlikable protagonist since purple rain here we have michael douglas as a homophobic rapist who gets along with his misogynist co-workers except when he's slamming them into walls which he also does to the women in his life who seem to like him despite everything about him half a point to Sharon Stone who does her steely best and another half point for sheer absurdity but this movie has a lot of nerve being famous when it's ultimately a mystery with one suspect uh here I mean, is... there are there are at least three suspects Well, here's Bob. He says, I'm sorry, but this is just a ridiculous movie. To me, the writing is stifled. It feels false, for lack of a better word. The acted, acting, he says acted, but I assume he means acting. The acting is consistently overdone, and the direction is so calculated calculated and false that, to my mind, this movie is simply a waste of time. As a study of supposedly kinky sex, again, it's just dumb. It feels to me to be so obviously done to titillate the mainstream. So many movies have been done so much better on so many levels. This thing, just pathetic. To see attention given to junk like this, as a comparison, I happen to see The Godfather just prior to this, and the feel of the two movies in comparison was so striking that this utterly paled. Granted, few films stand a chance when put against the godfather but this was so abrupt i was astounded at the utter badness of basic instinct like comparing any movie to the godfather is a little unfair yeah. <laughs> i just watched all three not too long ago it, they were they're, they're pretty good i hate the third one I'm the, third, the third one's not great <laughs> uh this is Laura. She says, this movie's so stupid, I can't believe it. One of the worst movies I've ever seen. What a waste of time to watch this shit. This movie is never exciting or erotic. It is stupid. That's what I can say. Wow. People are mean. <laughs> Carlos says, uh, the best part of this homophobic movie about a fucking dumbass alcoholic murder junkie rapist cop who lets his best friend drunk drive was definitely the burrito I made myself halfway through it. <laughs> he does describe uh, uh michael douglas's character pretty accurately right. by the way the guy the guy who played the um the guy who played the 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 partner the cop partner that was george zunza who was in salem slot remember him in salem slot oh, oh yeah wow. wow i knew he seemed familiar that's yeah that's good uh, I got a few. I got a few folks that were in Star Trek. We'll get there, Todd. Okay, all right, all right. This is your job. But I got, <laughs> I got two more quick reviews. Two more. Uh, Satu says, "What the fuck? Incredibly bad. Are you all fucking nuts? Rape is apparently kinky sex. Lesbians are men. 
Why would Sharon Stone want Michael Douglas? Why are the women naked all the fucking time? How is he a cop? I don't know what I hate more, the movie or the people that like this movie. (laughs) Uh, And finally, Margaret says, I hate so much about this movie, I can even list it instead of reviewing. Number one, why is Sharon Stone fucking the ugliest man I have ever seen in my life? (laughs) Number two, why is kinky sex in this movie rape or just being tied up for a split second? Number three, why did the protagonist end up actually raping someone with no consequence and it was never brought up in the film ever again? Number four, why did that weird cowboy friend say that only blue-haired women want to fuck him? I think I speak for every blue-haired woman when I say they do not. Number five, why are all the lesbians in this movie either embarrassed about it or called a man for expressing their lesbianism? Number six, who the fuck would be allowed to be a cop after murdering six people? Who the fuck let him be a cop after that? Is America America really this bad? Number seven, why did the cool murderer writer, hot Sharon Stone, fall in love with the rapist anger issues protagonist? I hate everything about this movie. If Sharon murdered him in the end, I think it would make up for a lot here. I actually despise how the director depicts sexuality, sex, and femininity, and I wish he just didn't. And a lot of these reviewers really are disgusted by Michael Douglas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are. They are. They're can, like, can I? Can I? As um, as a partial lesbian, I say no. So I, I don't think the per- that person understood that the blue-haired ladies that he's referring to are old ladies, not just people with their hair dyed blue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I can I uh, contribute one to this oh, segment, please, Gary? Because I've got a pretty fun one that I I happened to come across on Letterboxd, uh, a half star review from Marcella, a Letterboxd user. She says, "I really tried to write something intelligent and cool about basic instincts." That's plural. That's her, not me. Yeah, well, multiple instincts involved here. But I don't care enough to elaborate on this one. Sex, sex, sex. Naked people ask sex. Would you like a smoke, Nick's? Poker faces pretending to do police assignments. More sex. Annoying, suspenseful song that keeps playing even though there's no suspense. Everyone talking in sultry voices. Sex with naked people. Rough sex. Sex with cigars. Even more naked people. Mysterious individuals that are not really mysterious. Lack of underwear. There, now you don't need to endure the torture of watching a porn with a plot movie. Even Fifty Shades of Grey is more exciting than this crap. Not charismatic, sketchy in a very bad way, and although the story had potential, it was all wasted in bullshit, seriously. And just as an aside, why can't people have normal sex in movies instead of pretending they're about to give birth to an alien through their stomachs? Boring. That's the perfect word to summarize it. Silver lining, so people won't say I'm bitter. If you have insomnia or sleeping problems, this shit works better than chugging down an entire pack of triazolam. Woo. I don't even know what that is. I'm assuming <laughs> it's a sleep aid. <laughs> but let's be real for a second, if we could take a moment in this episode of Cinema Shot to say, uh, obviously I want Todd's point of view, but I don't entirely disagree with any of these people. Yeah, you Honestly, didn't like it. You don't like this movie? I don't think it's that good. Uh, I think I think that it's kind of boring. Really? I think, yeah, I do. I honestly do. And I, I think that 
you know, I appreciate, you know, Sharon Stone or what. To be honest, I don't care. Like, it, it's just, I think the only reason this movie is still around and still, like, it's still involved in conversation about cinema is because of her vagina. I swear to God, that's what I really think. Well, you just put I, it out there. I, I, I'm going to disagree with that because I, I do think that this is not, I don't think it's boring at all. I don't agree with anyone who says it's boring because I think that the, the mystery, I, I think it's an don't incredible with me. I think it's an incredibly well-written mystery. I think it's intriguing. Uh, I think, again, I said it before, but I think Catherine Trammell is one of the better, the, one of the best characters to come out of movies in the nineties. Cause she's complex. I mean, she is, you never really know what's going through her mind. Uh, and, and part, a lot of that's from Sharon Stone's uh, performance. Well, the, uh, the credit I almost mentioned was, was going to be Sharon Stone. I wanted to be, uh fair to her because she is clearly playing a character unlike she would ever play again or had played before and she was it's weird because sharon stone is known as just being super hot now i think that's all from this again i mean not um, obviously she's very hot but i just mean like in total recall she did the same thing she did like a weird like double you know, like she's like a double agent person. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to jump in. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I, I do think that Sharon Stone does a good job in this movie, but that's it. Like, I think that she, there, there's a, I, I appreciate the fact that she's very sexually. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Like she's just, she controls the situations with her sexuality and that's an, a unique perspective to take for a movie in especially at this point yeah well the thing is uh, you know th this movie we, we've talked about the impact of some of uh the other other films in Verhoeven's filmography but this movie basic instinct you kind of have to give it credit for it it helped to create an entire subgenre of film that became incredibly popular and profitable in the 90s even though it was fairly short-lived and that's the erotic thriller uh the, the 90s erotic thriller i mean basic instinct wasn't the first movie in that subgenre uh there were some that came out in the 80s like fatal attraction you know with michael douglas and and even jagged edge uh but though remember that movie jade yeah well that's also uh joe Westerhouse, which came out after this oh well how about yeah. that and so these these Erotic thrillers that came out in the 90s, they're essentially updated film noirs, you know, yeah. but with the added thrill of the possibility of seeing actors naked. You know, because because this is very much a film noir, this movie is. Uh, it's also often compared to like an American giallo, the way that it's got those twists and turns in its plot is very reminiscent of an Italian uh, giallo. But what Basic Instinct did, you know, again, it wasn't the first erotic thrill thriller, but it kind of defined and popularized the genre. We talk about this as in, uh, we've, we've talked about this with like slasher movies. You know, Halloween wasn't the first slasher movie, but it created the the rules and the tropes and what, everything you think of with a slasher movie were sort of defined by Halloween. This is kind of doing the same thing for for that erotic thriller. And once again, I think Verhoeven is not, you know, 
he, he's not operating just on one level. You know, just like in Total Recall, just like in RoboCop, he's he's making that erotic thriller, but he's also playing with some like Hollywood tropes. You know, he's homaging everything from from Hitchcock to Dario Argento. Yeah. And and speaking of like the Giallo stuff, that that uh not just in the plot, you know, I, I mentioned the plot is kind of that Byzantine, you know, plot that you get from a from a giallo, but giallos are also very unrestrained in their depictions of sex and violence. Uh, and that elevator kill at the end, mm. and the way that the killer's dressed, that's straight out of an Italian thriller. It absolutely yeah. is. Yeah. But the, the way that Esther House's script is, um, is structured, like he's throwing in a new twist every five minutes. So I don't know how it, this could be called boring uh, because, and these twists are either in regards to the, the central mystery, the plot, or in the backstories of its characters, you know, uh, it, which is common, you know, in, in a film noir to have shady uh, histories in your characters, you know. Right, uh, right. You know, it, it wouldn't be out of place in like a, a film noir from the 40s for you to have this private detective or, or PI who has some kind of shadiness in his past. Basic Instinct takes that to a in, in typical Verhoeven fashion to a preposterous level because uh, Nick not only has a shady past, his shady past includes him being an alcoholic who accidentally murdered Taurus while he was high on cocaine. And then his wife killed herself. Like that's, that's Verhoeven taking those like tropes of old movies and just like cranking it up to like just ridiculous levels. And I think that's what makes this movie kind of fun. Yeah. I, I I really I'm glad you brought about all the noir stuff because yeah as I was watching I was like oh this if they had rendered this in black and white <laughs> yeah oh oh Yandabont's lighting the way yeah. that he lights like the way that you you're always seeing light coming in through like blinds so that people have the lines across their face especially in the mm-hmm. interrogation scene but it's really all throughout the movie like the yeah. lighting he's doing is very film noir just in full bright 90s color yeah exactly um yeah i love i love noir and sex aside this uh i had fun with this this was a first viewing for me i had first never, time yeah yeah i mean everybody's seen this the scene but yeah like, we all have google yeah um <laughs> but this was uh first from beginning to end for me and uh yeah it's we've got we've got some complex uh characters with a bunch of layers and um yeah Yonda Bont knocks it out of the park, as we've said. Um, this was fun. I don't know that this would be like an all the time or even like a, I don't even know that this would be a once a year viewing for me, but this was fun. I enjoyed it. Good, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's one of those movies that like, yeah, I don't watch it. I, it's been years since I watched this movie, but I, I did enjoy watching it this time. And I really appreciated what Verhoeven was doing here. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd seen this, you know, I've I've got this old DVD that Artisan put out. Uh, that is like one of the back when everyone was doing like the special editions that mm. had all the crazy packaging and it's a clear case and it's got a ice pick embedded in it. Oh, fun. And the ice pick <laughs> is a ballpoint pen that you can use. Cool. <laughs> and I can't, even though I've upgraded this to Blu-ray, like I can't get rid of that. Cause I, no. I love that. The last time I watched this movie was on that DVD. And I, I'm sure that I bought this movie knowing, Hey, this is the movie where Sharon Stone shows her, her pooch. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> now I can watch Oops. it as like a, a thriller, like watching it as 
as a Paul Verhoeven movie because I know more about him now yeah. than I did 15 years ago. And I appreciate more of what he's doing. So I, I guess I should ask you guys. Uh, I know Todd always enjoys this segment uh, where we, we talk about further viewing and movies that we might watch as a double feature with this. Yeah. What would you, uh, what would you pair up with this one? Well, I mean, my, my pairings this, this week are uh, pretty surface level. I think you kind of have to look at, uh, fatal attraction um but to go like the other way uh i think single white female would actually yeah. be really great that, that's really one great... i was thinking of yeah that's a um, great and that's a gr- that movie holds up i rewatched it a few months ago it holds it's up very well it's really, really? great yeah. that's cool um and also pop- possibly mostly just because i really really am looking for any excuse to rewatch this movie uh the game uh with uh directed by um David just Fincher. as a Michael Douglas double feat. Yeah, just as a Michael Douglas. Um, du- Michael the game Douglas is double. incredible. Yeah, it's an amazing. It's, it's an underrated David Fincher movie. I uh, I've seen it twice in the last year because I bought the Criterion Blu-ray, Ooh, nice. and I watched it. And then a f- couple months later, I, I had uh, Bunny watch it because she'd never seen it, and oh, wow. it kind of blew her mind. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's a, if it, that's a movie where if you haven't seen it first time you watch it, it's gonna blow your mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gary, do you have anything? Yeah, I actually have a few. And uh, so one of them I already mentioned was Jade, uh, Jade which yep. I did not even realize was Joe Esterhaus. So yeah, that that's makes him. perfect sense. Directed yeah. by William Friedkin of The Exorcist fame. Yes, that's a good point. Jade, I, 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 I watched I, it way I, early on. And all of these movies, by the way, I watched right way early on and would be excited to see them again because it has been a long time. But the same similar feelings were brought up for me. Uh, another one would be, do you remember Nicole Kidman in to die for? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, it's not, it's, that one's more like her character is kind of similar to Sharon Stone's. In it's that not she's sexy. Like, it's not like, like some super sexual role for Nicole Kidman. It's just like, no, it's she's, more an, an icy blonde. She's know, just somebody of, who like is really forwarding their life and not mm-hmm. afraid to murder somebody to make. And that I think happen. that was Gus Van Zant, if I remember right. That, that I remember. I've right. not seen that movie in years, but I I remember really liking that one. Well, here's another one that, along with this movie, uh, I trolled the uh, VHS racks for in uh, Video Warehouse in the town I grew up in, and that is Bound. Uh, so if you haven't seen Bound. That is uh, Jennifer Tilly, and uh, well, uh, just to uh, just as a little tease for what's coming in a few months, we will be talking about Bound on our next series. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jennifer Tilly be fine. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but that one—that's the Wachowskis movie. So, yeah, you know, oh, that's, that's cool. a that's a good one. And their, their first movie. Yeah, actually, oh, that, yeah. that's correct. That okay, is their yeah, first yeah. movie. Yeah. But anyway, that movie's very ladies will do what they will kind of of movie. I don't know how else to put that. I feel stupid for saying that. But uh, did I mean, but did you see, uh, did you come across? We saw her pussy, Gary. God. (laughs) I was going to say the story about Joe Hesterhouse say, and I I apologize because I was embedded in my notes here, but. Uh, the story about the the dancer that he met that he tried to have sex with or he did have sex with. Oh. 
Oh, well, that's that's what he says this movie was based on. Oh. He had sex with a dancer, and at the end of it, she pulled a gun on him, supposedly, according oh, to shit. Joe Esterhouse. And it was like, this is all you want. This is blah, blah, blah. And he was like, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't, you know, I thought you were having a good time, too. And she's like, yeah, but this is all men ever want or have ever wanted from me and blah, blah, blah. And he said, basically the story, I don't know much more detail than that, except he said there was a very lengthy conversation before she finally put the gun down and left. But that was the premise (laughs) for like when basic instinct came into his head. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. I forgot to mention that earlier, but that's also true about Joe Esterhouse. Well, let me give you my, uh, my yeah. my uh, further viewings here. I mean, I guess an obvious one would have to be Fatal Attraction. Yeah, yeah. And Fatal Attraction, yeah. directed by Adrian Lin, who also did Flashdance, which, as we mentioned, was co-written by Joe Esterhouse. Uh, he also did Jacob's Ladder, with an indecent proposal, which uh, incidentally would make a pretty good double feature with this too. Mm. Uh, but that you know that that's a pretty solid movie there's also one that i I don't remember if it's good uh but uh because it's been a long time since i saw it but sharon stone's next movie after this was one called sliver came out in 1993 uh and sliver was also written by joe esterhouse (laughs) <laughs> and it started, it started and it started Sharon Stone alongside uh Billy Baldwin. I think it's Billy Baldwin uh who who did that one. Uh, one of the Baldwin brothers. I think it's Billy. It was probably but yeah. Billy. He seemed to be ready to take his pants off at any point. Yeah, so uh yeah, but that that's another kind of, you know, erotic thriller kind of thing. But and this and, like and that one she's like, like a, the she's like the victim, not the not the bad guy in it. So more fun to me movies. Well, I, and, and I don't remember exactly because I haven't seen this movie in a long time either. So I can't say anything about it other than it exists. Is that Wild Things is another movie that was very. That popular. was another one I was going to mention is Wild Things. Yeah. Another yeah, one that uh, I, I don't recall it being good or not, but there are scenes that I. Uh, well, I don't know if well. uh, Paul Verhoeven, <laughs> he couldn't be the first with an erect penis, but I know you definitely see Kevin Bacon's in this one. Technically, he, he technically Kevin Bacon is buck naked in a later Verhoeven movie for most of the runtime. Okay, you yeah, just well, don't see him. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's invisible. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, another one when you you mentioned single white female and another movie that I always think about so, for some reason in conjunction with that one. It came out around the same time, maybe the same year. But the hand that rocks the cradle. Mm. Uh, not exactly like a sexy thriller um although there is some there is some like the babysitter seducing the husband stuff in it but that i remember that being a really good thriller as well so hmm. i just like the i really i've got a thing for like those 90s thrillers uh, well just well, like we're saying all of this and i want to be very clear that the thing is is that this is a it's absolutely a softer take even if it doesn't seem that way, I mean, like a porno wise, there was uh, nothing soft in this movie, Gary. <laughs> uh, well, no, I just want to be very clear that we just we we've talked about thriller and uh, 
and like movies like I Spit on Your Grave, I feel like these are all like variations of that subject matter. Mm -hmm. I Spit on Your Grave is like from the 70s. And it is this kind of, well, I mean, you don't know what Sharon Stone's motivation is in this exactly. Yeah, I mean, she just I mean, kills yeah, that's the thing. But, you don't know why she's doing this to dudes, like what's happened in her past. But, I but think a that's person part of using the, their sexuality, or like a female using right. their sexuality to like murder someone, like same I thing feel with like thriller. I, I, they call her one eye. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like so, thriller, and I spit on your grave. I would feel like fall into this very same cat. Well. Yeah. In a broad sense, falling in the same very category, but they, this is not this, a revenge movie necessarily. Yeah, but. this isn't necessarily a revenge movie, but it is like the feminine. Uh, you're you're using your sexuality to get into a situation, and you can murder someone essentially. Right. But yeah, you, know, you don't know why she's doing. It. She could be just a stone cold psychopath. But so, Todd, before we wrap it up, you you said you had some. Yeah. Some Star Trek stuff in this one because I didn't come across any in this one. Yeah, I, it's, I don't know. I don't know. Was Sharon Stone in Star Trek? I I checked everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you went through Unfor everyone. Unfortunately, uh, no. But um, yeah, I, I did look up everybody just because I wasn't sure how serious you were about me <laughs> looking up. I think Star it's Trek. a fantastic idea. I mean, if Michael <laughs> Douglas was in a WWE rig at any point, I would definitely mention it. Right. Um, so Bruce A. Young, uh, he plays Andrews. He was in Star Trek Renegades. Uh, one of as, the one of the cops, right? Uh, yes. Black, yes. Black, black guy. Yep, that's him. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was in Star Trek Renegades as Admiral Armstrong. What the hell is Star Trek Renegades? Star Trek Renegades is kind of a fan-made uh, production, uh, okay. fan-made TV show, I don't feel like and it's that counts. You're <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it's like um, uh, Chekhov's been on it, and uh, as Chekhov, and a couple of other, a couple of other notable uh, Star Trek cast members have made appearances okay. on Renegade, Renegades as their as their Star Trek uh character that they are known for uh steven rowe is one of the internal affairs investigators uh he was in he he was a chanting monk in the ds9 pilot in 1993 called emissary <laughs> and then frida fo shen uh she was the registrar at berkeley when uh they were doing their yeah. investigation she's uh she's the helmsman of the uss calvin really in, uh Start in J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek in 2009. And she also wow, did uh, the voice for Admiral Alice Liu on Star Trek Bridge Commander in 2002. And then Anne Lockhart was part of Star Trek Continues, uh, call, uh, episode called What Ships Are For in 2017. Is that another fan thing? That is another fan thing. But then most importantly, Jerry Goldsmith. Who wrote the Well, of course, yes. I mean, we talked about generation. that last week, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we, so. we talked about that. Jerry Goldsmith's work here is is, is amazing. Yeah, I mean, that guy is a that guy's a legend. But that's everybody in Star Trek. Oh, is that what we're doing? Yeah, <laughs> that's my little outro. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, much like Total Recall, uh, you would think that Basic Instinct's massive box office success would mean that a sequel would kind of be a no brainer, right? But it would take. 14 years and some major roadblocks along the way before a sequel would finally be released. So when talks for a sequel began, Michael Douglas flat out turned down the offer to reprise his role of Nick, uh, as did the studio's next choice, which was Robert Downey Jr. Uh, Stone, wow. however, did sign on uh, for a reported 
15 million dollar payday for this movie and before long they had a director on board and it's a director who uh, who has circled some other Verhoeven projects that we've already talked about in previous episodes and that was Canadian director David Cronenberg he had signed on to do Basic Instinct 2 that's one of those amazing lost movies that I kind of I wish we we had seen uh, but because what happened was about a month before filming Cronenberg left the project apparently due to a constant uh, quote vicious fights with Sharon Stone which uh, of course left the project without a director and a few other directors were considered along the way and it eventually went to a Scottish director named Michael Caton Jones who had previously directed movies like uh, the historical epic Rob Roy you know with Liam Neeson uh, the Bruce Willis action film The Jackal and of course, the modern day classic, Doc Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Isn't it weird that Rob Roy and Doc Hollywood are directed by the same guy? <laughs> it feels, feels right. That is so weird. It's but like he's a similar like, story. Yeah. Uh, but Basic Instinct 2 was released in 2006 and was a colossal failure, both critically and commercially. It made just a little over $3 million at the box office here in the U.S., did much better overseas, but was still considered financially. Uh, a bomb uh, which led to plans for a third film being scrapped although sharon stone has said that she would be willing to direct a third film if they decided to do it i've never seen basic instinct 2 um i uh attempted to watch it for this episode and it is not streaming anywhere to rent i tried the same thing can't rent it it, without me just plopping out 25 bucks for a dvd for it like there was no way for me to watch this movie yeah interesting it's like roku like even searching for it on roku it didn't even register it as a film it's nowhere (laughs) it's so weird because that's a fairly recent movie released by a major studio i remember it happening yeah that's 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 really odd yeah Um, strange yeah i will throw in there i meant to say this earlier and i'm sorry because i just it just hit me but uh leilani um uh sorrel who played roxy yeah, in the movie, it's just worth mentioning. Just as a side note, one thing I did learn was that because of Verhoeven, apparently, or I don't know, maybe it's completely unrelated to Verhoeven, but you know, RoboCop had Miguel Ferrer, uh, it was in that film and also in Star Trek. Thanks, Todd. Mm-hmm. Shut your mouth, yeah. Uh, Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks, uh, who sadly passed away, but right after this movie, as Roxy her and Miguel hooked up and they got married and she stopped acting completely. Like she was just, she was married to Miguel Ferrer and just like, I guess decided she was happy enough. Uh, He, he, unfortunately he passed away uh, recently, like this past year. Yeah. Like recently. And she's, she's back in it now. Like she started acting again. I don't know what Hmm. the story is, but just, uh, just a side note that uh, Sharon Stoll's bitch, uh roxy (laughs) was also with miguel ferrer and i think there there had to be some verhoven influence in this maybe just a coincidence back to back but yeah it could be it could be coincidence well speaking of side notes you know i mentioned uh, joe esterhouse's uh, childhood earlier you know he was born in hungary to obviously hungarian parents later on when he was about 45 years old he found out that his father had collaborated with the Nazis in German occupied Hungary. Like he wrote, he wrote propaganda 
uh, like anti-Semitic propaganda. He organized book burnings and he find and, you know, then they end up moving to America and fleeing. But he found that out when he's 45 years old. He makes finds sense. I mean, I his... thought a lot of things about Basic Instinct, and one of them was it seemed very <laughs> Nazi-ish. Well, uh, Esther House is not is definitely not <laughs> a Nazi. Uh, in fact, after he discovered that, he cut his father out of his life. He never spoke to his father again, and wow. and his father eventually died, and they never spoke to again. Uh, because to be honest his... with you, it bums me out a little bit for a lot of reasons. But even if his father had like turned his life around, it was like I fucked up. Like, yeah, but he 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 never he didn't tell his son that his son found this out on his uh, own. Yeah. So it's not like he ever confessed to it and said I did this awful stuff when I was younger, you know. Uh he he found this out independently. I'm going to so, be honest with you Justin, I wish he hadn't told me the story because it kind of bugs me out in general. Well, well, I'm going to cheer you up Gary by telling you what we're talking about next week because okay. after the success of Basic Instinct, Bearhoven, you know, he's like, "Hey, the Americans like the sexy movies. <laughs> so we're going to, so let's do it again. And he reteamed with Joe Esterhouse. You know, they had had that little falling out early on. They made up later on and they, they collaborated again on their next project. And their next project is, I would say one of the most infamous films of the 1990s. I think that's a fair assessment from 1995 next week or on our next episode, rather guys, we're talking about Showgirls. Oh boy. It's going to be exciting. I'm going to be honest with you. Like one of the hottest things I've ever seen in my life was from this movie, probably. But you ruined it a few weeks ago uh, for me. So it was going to be Elizabeth <laughs> Berkeley bouncing on Kyle McLaughlin's dick. And yeah. uh, now all that. I think about is Rucker Hauer. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what this Verhoeven series has done for me. But I'm excited <laughs> to talk about Showgirls. Verho- talking about Rucker Hauer and which, which role? It is Elizabeth Berkeley's role. We were talking about that. You go back and listen to the episode. We talk about like, what if, what if they had stayed friends? Like would Rucker (laughs) Hauer have taken Elizabeth Berkeley's role in Showgirls? And I was like, you know, I'm picturing him bouncing up and down in the pool. Well, well, you can think about that the entire time that you watch it. And and I'm sure for our homosexual friends, that's perfectly fine. Rucker Hauer is a sexy man. There's got to be a way to decomposing now. So we got to deep. We got to see if we can deep fake all the scenes (laughs) and just put Rucker Hauer's face. Oh my god, Elizabeth Berkeley's body. Anyway, if you guys want to, uh, (laughs) if you guys want to watch along with us, uh, you can find it streaming. Head to cinemashock.net where you can. Uh, find links to everywhere that you can stream the movie. Uh, you can also, of course, find all of our episodes there. You can find our merch. You can find links to our Discord. And, of course, all of our social media uh, links are on there. We're at cinema underscore shock on Twitter and Instagram. Like us on Facebook. And uh, where can you guys be found on the uh, Fine-ass Gina Gershon, by the way. Just throwing that's that your that, Is that your new username? That's my new, that's my new Twitter <laughs> name. Fine-ass Gina Gershon. <laughs> at Fine ass Gina Gershon. <laughs> you can find me. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I just I don't know. It just hit me again. Sorry, we've been we've been having fun today. Uh so but she's in showgirls too. Also in bound side she note. Is. I was about to say she's in both of those. Yeah. So so mentioned oh, bound hey, earlier. Can she's also in face off as long as we're just naming movies. She's can we in. just give a little bit of love to Gene Triplehorn? 
Oh, yeah, man. We didn't talk about yeah, her a whole lot. Yeah. She's great in this. Yeah. I mean, is that all, all, all you want to do? That's all. That's all you <laughs> just need to bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't seen a lot of her in other stuff, except for maybe uh, Waterworld. I was going to say, <laughs> say a lot of this, a lot of her in this, and a lot of her in Waterworld. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I bet this is Gary Horde on all the social medias. Hey, Gary, do you have a wrestling show? Yeah, I do. I have a wrestling show. It's uh, at T-I-P-W show. It's, it stands for This is Pro Wrestling, uh, if that helps. But it's at T-I-P-W show. And uh, also, if you just follow the National Wrestling Alliance, they're doing their thing. And uh, I got a, I'm happy to say I have a big part of that now. So uh, if you if you follow along with there, a lot of my stuff is involved in that. Nice. I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials. If uh, if you're down for some Star Trek, I have a podcast called the Computer Resume Podcast, where we cover the entire franchise in chronological order. Uh, we are we just loaded up the season one finale of the show, so we're going to take a little break. Featuring Gary Horn, yeah, featuring Gary Horn. I'm, I'm and, there. That's uh, our first. Our first episode, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. Our first episode of season two is with Mr. Justin Bishop. And we've got uh, some really great things planned for season two. Anyways, come find us, Computer Resume Podcast, at Computer Resume on all the socials. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. I am at Justin underscore Bishop. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Until next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. She's got a million bucks. She fucks fighters and rock and roll stars. And Johnny has the keys. <laughs> Could have swore it was going to be a joke about Johnny's keys being in Sharon Stone's pussy. Yeah. Cave of Wonders. <laughs> <laughs>